2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about the inside story of artificial intelligence and our race to build the future with technology journalist Luke Dormel and his new book, Thinking Machines.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked
0: for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com
1: Luke Dormel is a technology writer, author of The Apple Revolution and The Formula, How Algorithms Solve All Our Problems and Create More. And he's written for Wired, The Guardian, Fast Company, The Sunday Times and others, as well as directing a range of television documentaries. And Luke's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Thinking Machines, The Inside Story of Artificial Intelligence and Our Race to Build the Future. Luke, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Tell us what the idea behind the book is. Why did you want to write it? So,
3: I've always been kind of fascinated by this idea of artificial intelligence. You know, I love technology. I've kind of grown up as, I guess, as a geek. I've always loved kind of gadgets. But I also kind of came from a humanities um, background. And that always seemed something really kind of fascinatingly um alluring about this idea of artificial intelligence and creating thinking machines. You know, it's an idea that sort of traces back to the Greek myths. And certainly, you know, a lot of science fiction touches on this idea. So really what I wanted to kind of do with this book, I think in the last Probably the last decade, people will have noticed that artificial intelligence has started to kind of seep into their lives, you know, regardless of how smart you think that they are. All of us have sort of iPhones or Android devices, so we have sort of tools like Siri and Google in our pocket. Um, you know, recently there was the the Amazon Echo which uh, launched. We're hearing more and more about self driving cars, which is going to be this um thing. Which you know, I mean, they're starting to roll out into uh, sort of systems that we're seeing on the on the road. So really, there's this sense that artificial intelligence, after being this kind of imaginary future for maybe the first fifty years of its sort of life, has suddenly started to become a reality. And I found that there were very few books that actually kind of addressed. I suppose that the history of artificial intelligence in a kind of an an approachable way, explaining kind of what's meant by this, the idea of artificial intelligence. Because one of the things I realized when I was writing the book is that you speak to any number of AI professors, people who are experts in this field, no one can quite agree on sort of what this idea of artificial intelligence actually means. So I kind of wanted to go out and write a book that sort of looked at where this came from, where we are now, and look at into the future as well, but maybe not sort of, you know, a lot of books have talked about the kind of the far-flung future, the point at which machines become smarter than we are. And, you know, that that's interesting. But I kind of wanted to look at, I suppose, the, the contemporary state of artificial intelligence. If you're someone who's interested in this field, but maybe doesn't hold a PhD in computer science, doesn't want a book that's bogged down by, you know, lots and lots of sort of heavy maths, something that you can kind of pick up and get a, a, a sort of a grasp of what this field means and all of the different sort of tendrils that it has going off in different, uh, different directions.
1: So, I mean, you mentioned things like, you know, smart devices, like the smartphone assistant, Siri and stuff like that. And people will obviously be thinking of robots from, you know, data to the Terminator or whatever. So perhaps we should define what artificial intelligence means then. Is there a, is there a definition of it?
3: I think that there is a broadly agreed upon definition, which is making uh, uh, computers that Are able to carry out intel or or act that if a person was to carry them out would be assigned a degree of intelligence. But I think that beyond that, there is a huge amount of disagreement about what this field actually means. I mean, if you even if you go back to the very start of artificial intelligence, and I should kind of, I guess, sort of point out that this year is, is 60 years since the birth of artificial intelligence. It was formed in 1956. And uh, uh, back then it was it's kind of amusing and it's got this kind of great uh, sort of optimism of, you know, the decade prior to, uh, you know, the, the 1960s starts with with uh, this kind of declaration that by the end of the decade, man's going to have landed on the moon. And, you know, at the time that seemed totally impossible. And then, of course, you jump forward to the end of the 1960s and that has happened. And AI sort of was the optimistic version of that for the decade before. You had a relatively small number of experts who sort of uh, gathered together at this uh, university campus in America and had this idea that, you know, give us six weeks and we think we'll be able to kind of solve this. You know, how difficult can it be to make a computer sort of as smart as a person? You know, surely we should be able to do that with just a few weeks of smart thinking. But even back then, when you had a small group of people who were working in this, you had disagreement about what exactly it was that people wanted to do. You had sort of, you know, psychologists who were interested in using it to essentially kind of reverse engineer the human brain, work out how we think as humans. You had people who didn't care at all about that, who wanted just to create something that had the illusion of intelligence. So there's always sort of been this, even if you look today, you know, you've got researchers who are very interested in building sort of biofidelic algorithms. So algorithms, which uh, sort of essentially kind of function in the same way that the human brain functions. And then you have a company like Google, which is pouring more money into artificial intelligence than anyone else. And Google's money comes from advertising. So essentially, they've got, you know, the greatest AI minds of our generation, you know, coming up with smart ways to sell us adverts. So there are kind of a number of different, um, I don't think there's necessarily a consensus agreement in, in some senses.
2: I'm Alex Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Going back 60 years then to 1956, when the idea of artificial intelligence was was first sort of mooted, what were they thinking it was going to be then? So presumably this is more cyborgs than fridges that tell you when you run out of milk.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that that first generation of uh, researchers were very interested, uh, at least in the mainstream with uh, creating machines which would be carrying out things that would be recognizably human in their intelligence so for example you know and, uh, i mean they were you've got to realize that they were a very smart bunch of guys so they kind of looked and, and and it's interesting they were all sort of men of a very similar age and in often in many cases a similar sort of background so they sort of looked at what they did as smart men of a certain age and sort of realize, oh, we all play chess. If we could make a computer that could play chess, surely that would, be, you know, everything else is going to be easy. That's going to be the real challenge. So early on, they were sort of focused on goals like uh, sort of a computer, yeah, making a computer that could beat a person at chess, which, of course, happened several sort of decades uh, later. But I think an interesting kind of distinction to quickly point out, if I can go off on a, a little bit of a a, a hopefully not a tangent here, but I think it is an interesting shift which has happened with artificial intelligence, is essentially this uh, division between what's often called a good old-fashioned AI and the type of artificial intelligence which is practiced uh, today, which is often sort of uh, grouped under the, the heading machine learning. And essentially, what Even though these early AI researchers had different ideas about what they were trying to build in some senses, they kind of had, a lot of them had the same idea about how to go about achieving it. And they kind of imagined that making a machine intelligent could be done in this sort of top-down way, essentially creating lots and lots and lots of rules to explain exactly how a computer or a robot should deal with a specific scenario. And what they found is, and, and this is why we sometimes have this idea that artificial artificial intelligence did. <laughs> nothing for a number of years or you know was this sort of terrible failed story for its first few decades these systems that they came up with which were capable of sort of carrying out a, a range of different uh, sort of tasks from you know playing chess to doing uh, language translating to sort of building uh, towers of blocks with robots all of these sorts of things but they found that these systems often worked very well in in laboratory situations where sort of elaborate micro worlds could be created in which which every single variable could be controlled, and as anyone who's listening to this, who's sort of watched a movie like you know Jurassic Park, will know, these scenarios where scientists think that they can cover in advance every single eventuality don't tend to work out so well in real life, and that's essentially what what happened here. The systems that they kind of were building turned out to be very slow and unwieldy, and generally not very good at dealing with the complexity of life. And there's this great quip from a writer at the time who talked about how early AI systems were a little bit like the God of the Old Testament with lots of rules but no mercy. But so what sort of happened is that our whole approach to artificial intelligence has uh, kind of shifted. And I should point out here that I'm I'm speaking about the kind of the mainstream of AI. There have always been people who have had different ideas of how to kind of achieve this, but in terms of the majority of funding. So what we have today is a sort of revolution in what's called uh, machine learning. And as its name implies, this kind of field of machine learning is focused on uh, building machines that don't just blindly follow rules which have been laid out for them in advance, but they can actually sort of take on new information and make sense of it. And so so essentially, they, they learn, and they do this by kind of training on enormous quantities of um, sort of training data, which essentially comes from, you know, in the same way that we, as we grow up, experience the world, and we use this to kind of form an understanding of what it means and how it works. So, so, so to uh, do today's machine learning systems require kind of, you know, big data sets of training. And often that comes from the internet, where every day, I think around something like 2.5 quintillion bytes, of data are generated every day, which is around one million times the amount of information that the human brain 's capable of holding sort of every day and these systems so, so uh, I, I, sorry, I realize i 've wandered off slightly there. I hope that that sort of answered the question in terms of this is an interesting shift which has happened over the Over the years, in terms of this sort of top down versus bottom up way that we think about building intelligence
1: I certainly did and I wanted to talk about that shift in you know in those days this would have been you know MIT and the military and IBM nowadays it's I mean obviously IBM is a, is a company, but nowadays it's like you know it's Google and apple it's about products not necessarily that sort of infrastructure that once upon a time was. So, like, when did that shift happen?
3: that's a really really good question it's one that i tried to kind of unpick while i was writing the book because you're, you're you're right i mean now companies like google uh do sort of they do still do these kind of open-ended research projects where they'll create something you know just for the fun of it or for the kind of the, the sort of hacker ethos idea of you know just a fun research project for the sake of it but you know a lot of the the work that they're doing they are thinking about you know how could we incorporate this into the next generation of phone for example i think you see this more with Apple than uh, just about any other company. Apple at the moment is investing a huge amount of money in artificial intelligence and they're very very focused on you know how, how how can we sort of turn this into a product that you know means that on your next iphone uh, you'll be able to kind of you know search for photos by putting in your wife's name and it'll automatically be able to, to recognize her within images and pull up all of those uh, photos there are some great stories <laughs> i won't say there are some great stories in the book there are some great stories sort of the with people i've spoken to of that of, of that sort of 1950s 1960s era, who just talk about uh, the the government funding that they got in those early days from uh, uh, DARPA, where they would just get these enormous checks delivered to them all in one go. And essentially, there wasn't really, they weren't expected to deliver very much. It, It was kind of, you know, oh, here's I don't know half, half a million dollars and yeah, just go away and sort of research something that you know in twenty years may be useful to us. So I think that that sort of uh, uh, ambition has slightly sort of changed in some senses. But I do, I mean, we still do get uh, some enormous um, military uh, government programs in, in terms of investing in artificial intelligence. I didn't realize until I started work on the book that uh, Siri, all of us who have iPhones or iPads have. Um, you know that started as a government project. It started as a project to create a tool for generals uh, in, in, involved in, in war zones, and then it kind of developed into this other thing which we now use today. So there are still interesting kind of government uh, applications or, or sort of government research projects in this area. In the same way that there have always been, you know, a few sort of private companies who were sort of investing in artificial intelligence, and that kind of goes back to the, the 80s. You had a big kind of um, boom period, it was a sort of a boom and bust period within about five years, where you had the arrival of what were called expert systems. And again, this is the idea that essentially, you could take anyone who had a huge amount of knowledge about any one area, and you could essentially turn them into a sort of a series of algorithms, you could distill their knowledge into sort of various rules. And the idea was that if you're an expert, and you're speaking to to someone else, as long as that conversation can be, as long as you can kind of solve a problem using your expertise in, I think, less than 20 minutes, it could be automated. And that's when you suddenly got a huge amount of private investment in, in artificial intelligence. And then that very quickly sort of fizzled when people worked out these systems didn't actually work quite as well as they had hoped. So there has always sort of been a mix of both, but particularly when you're talking about I suppose predominantly the United States, which is where a lot of AI work is still being done. You know, it does seem that there has been that transition across from sort of government applications to um, now private enterprise.
1: Later on, we're going to talk about, you know, the inevitable sort of doomsday scenarios of AI. But before that, like more prosaically, but I think certainly in the short term, more urgently... AI is going to be a threat to people's jobs. Let's talk about what sort of thing. Now, we're going to get on to talk about um, self-driving cars in a bit. And so an obvious one is, you know, any form of driving that people do. But what else? What are the things that we might not necessarily expect
3: A lot of people will be familiar with a study which was done a few years ago at uh, the the Oxford Martin uh, School. I think this was 2013. And they did a a sort of study into the kinds of jobs that are going to be carried out by machine intelligence. And they concluded that in the next 20 years, 47% of currently existing jobs are susceptible to automation. And they predicted that there were essentially going to be two waves of this kind of AI takeover. And they said that, you know, in the first wave, I think they talked about transportation and logistics occupations, and the kind of the bulk of uh, office and administrative support workers, and uh, sort of labour in production occupations, were going to be sort of AI and I is if that's a word. And then in the second wave, they talked about every task that involves finger dexterity or feedback or observation or working in confined spaces, which pretty much rules out a lot of uh, a lot of people. So I do think that this is going to have an enormous impact on, you know, the lives of people who are who are listening to this. And in some ways, it's why I get I don't get frustrated when people talk about, you know, the singularity or the threat of artificial intelligence being, you know, sort of robots with Austrian accents marching down the streets in leather jackets. But I do feel like this is something which we really do need to deal with. And it's something that is actually already happening now. It's not reliant on us figuring out how to, you know, reverse engineer the human brain, or it's not uh, sort of reliant on exponential growth and this tipping point where machines suddenly become smarter than us. In a lot of cases now, employers are automating the kinds of jobs which Used to be carried out by people.
1: Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Luke Dormel, and we're talking about his book Thinking Machines The Inside Story of Artificial Intelligence and Our Race to Build the Future. And, Luke, I said we were going to talk about self driving cars. Now, we've obviously seen them for the last couple of years. There's been a lot of publicity about everybody that's developing self driving cars, whether that's like the fully automated cars. Like, you know, the Google self-drive cars. Or the Tesla one where you've got a sort of, you know, an advanced automatic system, basically. A sort of autopilot. I've spoken about this before on, on, on like, earlier Little Atoms. My, my sort of doubt about the self-driving cars is I could imagine a situation where all cars are self-driving. And obviously now we have a situation where all cars are not self-driving. It's the bit in the middle that I can't see ever happening. How can self-driving cars deal with human drivers <laughs> it's it's sort of fascinating because if you
3: i mean you only have to go back 10 years, I think there was a book which or a little bit more than 10 years, there was a book which came out in 2004, whose name I am blanking on at the moment, I'm afraid. But it was essentially it was written by two experts in in artificial intelligence. And they were talking about the kinds of jobs which could be automated and the kinds of jobs which couldn't. And again, they were talking about, you know, any job that sort of Essentially, kind of relies on analysing sort of data that stays the same, or you know, a job that's easily kind of ter- that we can sort of transform into sort of rule sets. These are going to be things that are are um, going to be automatable. And then they talked about the fact that cars. A self-driving car could never happen because look at the, the enormous amounts of information a self-driving car kind of needs to absorb and make sense of in order to be able to kind of carry out a, a, a drive. So, so you can imagine how a self-driving car, if weather conditions always stayed exactly the same, if, um, you know, there were no other cars on the road, there was nothing unpredictable that could happen, how you could program it to get from one place to another. But I think that, that the challenge, of course, is that, you know, as anyone who's ever been on a road will know that doesn't happen you get kind of you know a car a, a sort of a cyclist who sort of zips out at the wrong moment you get a car which uh, you know brakes too hard essentially you get a lot of, of very unstructured very sort of difficult to deal with uh, scenarios i think what's been quite impressive is the fact that AI cars, you know, of course, there has been a lot of focus recently on uh, Tesla and the fatal self-driving car crash. But for the most part, cars have been pretty, you know, Google's self-driving car has been pretty impressive in terms of, you know, driving hundreds of thousands of miles in a wide variety of different uh, weather conditions, and has actually been, you know, certainly proven far safer and statistically less likely to be involved with a crash. Than a human driver. So I think that I don't know that that middle step is necessarily going to be quite as challenging as some people think. My dad is a real uh, skeptic when it comes to to this. And he recently went out for a test drive in one of these uh, Tesla cars, and again, was kind of blown away by the fact that these systems are really incredibly smart when it comes to, um, you know, being able to kind of react to things which happen, which seem like they're very very sort of unpredictable events, that they actually tend to be pretty, uh, pretty good at that. Long-term, I think, as you, you kind of point out, when everyone's got a self-driving car, in some ways it becomes easier. And I actually think that's when things get really exciting because at that point you move on to what we often talk about as the internet of things, which is essentially smart devices that can communicate with one another. And it's the kind of relationship between those devices, which uh, creates some really sort of interesting um, effects in some ways. And, you know, at that point, you know, that, for example, if you're driving, and I'm driving, and we're both going from, you know, to the same place, maybe we should take different routes so that, you know, the road stays clearer or something like that. And I think that is the point at which we're really going to see the impact of this technology. But I I think as far as long-term dreams of AI are concerned, the self-driving cars are actually going to be something which I don't see that there are going to necessarily be kind of massive bottlenecks in the same way that there are with maybe other aspects of artificial intelligence.
1: I want to talk about some other uses of AI in industry. One you talk about is how AI is helping NASA to design satellite components.
3: Yeah, this is, uh, you sort of stumbled upon a, uh, a, a bit of an obsession of mine here, I'm afraid. But I, I'm fascinated in the idea of whether or not a computer can be creative. And if you go back right to the start of of computer, so you talk about you know Ada Lovelace, the first computer programmer who was working with you know Charles Babbage, one of the things that she said was about the fact that a computer would never be able to uh, sort of originate a new idea. Essentially, I think she said that it has no. She was working on a project called the Analytical Engine, and she said that it has no pretensions, whatever, to originate anything. It can only do whatever we know how to do. Sorry, it can do only whatever we know how to in order to to be able to kind of work. And I think that one of the interesting things about creativity is the sense that – you know, if a machine is able to kind of carry out creative acts, that's something that we view as very kind of fundamentally uh, human. And this ties very much back into what we were talking about with uh, a sort of of, uh, employment being algorithmized in some ways. But we're seeing a number of different really interesting applications of this sort of computational creativity. And as you point out, NASA creating these uh, satellite uh, components is one of them. And I think it's a really interesting one, because, you know, it's an engineering. Job. It's not necessarily what something we would think of as creative in the same way that painting a picture or composing a piece of music is creative. But it it, it certainly involves originating new ideas. And essentially, what NASA um, has been working with and has for a number of years is something called uh, genetic algorithms. And this is a, a slightly different branch of artificial intelligence. But it essentially kind of deals with the idea that AI can kind of mimic evolutionary processes inside a computer. Um, So so it sort of comes out, you know, it starts with, well, in fact, it starts with someone sort of laying out uh, the the, the fitness functions for a particular thing. So, for example, NASA can say that they're looking for a satellite component that's, let's say, you know, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres and is capable of sort of radiating a a spherical or a sort of hemispherical pattern. And it's able to operate at a certain Wi-Fi band. And then it lets the computer kind of figure out and optimise a solution to that. And the great thing about this particular particular story was the fact that the guy who uh, launched this, a guy called, I, I think his name it Jason Loan, was the guy who sort of went to bat for the idea that uh, genetic algorithms could carry out this kind of creative role. And he, he, you know, had meeting after meeting after meeting, and eventually NASA kind of said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go. And he let it design this thing and it came out creating something which looked like no satellite component that anyone had ever seen before he said it looked like a sort of a squashed paper clip and he was just thinking oh my goodness you know i've sort of spent you know a year of my life arguing that a a computer can do this and it's kind of messed it up massively on the first go you know it's a little bit like recommending you know a friend for a job and then on their first day they get really drunk and hit on the wife of the boss or you know some some nightmare scenario but then he tried this component and he found that it worked better than any similar component that they had tried before which is you know pretty astonishing And 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 now genetic algorithms are used in you know Wide variety of different applications. Last week, I spoke with a a furniture designer um, in, in London who was using genetic algorithms to design a new line of chairs where he could sort of input the rules that he wanted the chairs to kind of abide by. And then the computer would just generate tens of thousands of different designs. And you could either kind of, you know, pick out one or two at the end that you liked, or you could say, you know, I'm going to decorate my house with 12 different chairs and each one's going to be slightly different and we'll let the computer kind of figure that out so i, I think that yeah i found that a really interesting part of my sort of research into this into this subject <laughs> I'm Natalie Haines. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: And both of those ideas, certainly the, um, the you know the NASA satellite one, you know perhaps a little less the chair design one. Although we're talking about designing you know a, a sort of a mass product, those sort of things seem like really great ideas to me. Whereas getting AI to write film scripts or to compose a symphony seem like appalling ideas. And I can't really justify in my mind why I think one is bad and the other one isn't, really. Because as you said, they are both replicating acts of human creativity.
3: Yeah, I I can see where, where you come from. And to be honest, this is the point that I think a lot of people struggle with because there is this idea that I don't know whether it's sort of an existential fear in some ways that we have, you know, we've been kind of squeezed out of a growing number of different jobs as machines have taken them over. And we kind of think, well, creativity, we've got that. Computers aren't coming anywhere near this. They're not going to, you know, write the next great novel. They're not going to compose this piece of music. And then we find out that in in some cases they're actually doing that. And I think that there's also this sort of degree to which we, you know, if I mean, I'm a big uh, sort of film buff and, you know, there are films that really tug at your emotions in not necessarily a sort of a sentimental sort of saccharine way, but really you feel sort of hit you on a kind of a gut level. And there's, you know, music that you can listen to, which really feels sort of It sort of transcends music. It becomes this kind of, uh, I I don't want to say a religious experience, but, you know, it's this kind of amazing experience. I'm sure everyone's had this sort of experience at some point where they're reading a book or or, or listening to a symphony or something, and they thought, you know, wow, this is just an incredible achievement. And then the idea that somehow a a pattern recognition computer has generated that, I think, sort of strikes us as slightly um, disconcerting in some ways, the fact that it provoked those kind of feelings
1: Feelings. Well, I think you know you describe yourself as a as a film buff. I would too, and that suggests you know somebody who who loves and cares about film as just opposed to just goes to the cinema for some entertainment. And the best films for us are films that are created by some artistic vision the worst films are films that you know these big blockbusters that you look up the credits and there's been 20 screenwriters and you know that there's been test screenings where they've changed things because people have said they didn't like this ending and they wanted something else done and when a thing's been through that process you know it comes out worse even though the idea is it's supposed to sort of streamline it and this seems to be like the ultimate version of that getting something to make the absolute ultimate commercial money making machine which is obviously what the studios want of course it is i understand that but that's not uh, that's not great for somebody who loves the cinema A couple of things to say to that, and I I,
3: I do, um, I'm afraid I have a terrible sort of affliction where uh, even if I agree with someone, which I sort of do in this case, I feel like I want to sort of argue against it. Let me sort of take on the role of lawyer to the AI here and try and defend my client's case. Uh, The first thing to point out is that if you go right back to The Birth of uh, Cinema... So you look at someone like Eisenstein, who, uh, you know, sort of directed Battleship Potemkin, you know, a classic piece of cinema which invented cinematic language. If you were to talk to him about this, he would be firmly on the side of the machines. He talked about how, you know, film was a triumph of engineering, not artistry, that kind of thing. He loved the idea that this was sort of a mechanized um, uh, sort of art form. So I think that there's plenty of sort of uh, critique going back to the 1930s about how this is how cinema is this sort of artificial medium which, you know, there was a lot of snobbery against cinema in the early days, the idea that it has always sort of had this kind of mechanised quality to it. But I think that what is interesting is that I don't think we are going to reach a point where you go to the cinema and instead of, you know, instead of a movie ending and saying, you know, directed by James Cameron, it's going to say directed by, you know, iPhone 8. I don't think anyone kind of wants to get to that point. And, you know, there are plenty of reasons, commercial and non-commercial, why you wouldn't. But I think that if you view artificial intelligence as an exciting tool for Creators, for human creators, then it can be something which augments uh, creativity. And just to give one kind of example, I mean, everyone talks about the fact that if artificial intelligence is going to be kind of used as part of that kind of creative process, it's going to become something which results in very sort of dumbed down blockbusters and that kind of thing. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the case. There was a really interesting, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to this or a lot of people listening to this will have seen the Netflix series House of Cards, which is, if you haven't, it's Fantastic! You should go and track it down. And this is a really, really interesting story because Netflix, when they 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 didn't create House Cards, it was a remake of a sort of previous BBC uh, series from the nineteen eighties. But what they did was they used artificial intelligence to work out what kind of show they wanted to create. So they looked at the data sets uh, provided by all of their users. They were able to see, you know, sort of which uh, shows uh, people enjoyed, the actors they particularly enjoyed based on, you know, which scenes they kind of rewound or, you know, did they watch a lot of films with. Christopher Walken and that kind of thing. And so they kind of started with this idea that we want to create uh, a, a show that's going to appeal to a particular audience. They looked at the directors these people enjoyed, they looked at the actors they enjoyed, they looked at the type of uh, of show they they watched and they found out that they really enjoyed films by david fincher um they really enjoyed kevin spacey and they really enjoyed political dramas and particularly the old bbc series house of cards based on the fact that they had watched a lot of episodes kind of very close together so they kind of figured that you know a remake of this show would sort of hit that sweet spot and i don't think anyone would argue that house of cards is a particularly sort of dumbed down show so i think in some cases Artificial intelligence can actually be used to maybe find audiences that movie studio execs who often do have this kind of lowest common denominator approach wouldn't necessarily know are out there. You know, if it can find out that there is an audience for, you know, 30 million dollar, you know, sort of mid budget legal thrillers rather than kind of, you know, big overblown explosion-filled Hollywood blockbusters, I think that that can only be a good thing, and I think that's something that AI can actually help with.
1: I want to talk about Watson, which was IBM's AI that, um, that famously beat humans at Jeopardy, the uh, the American quiz show. It's doing something, I don't know, possibly less impressive now. <laughs> are, you, are you referring
3: to Chef Watson, by any chance?
1: Yes, I am.
3: Right. So just to give people a little little bit of uh, background again, I mean, you you sort of summarized it there a few years ago. IBM, which has always been this company, which has done very, very kind of public showcases of what artificial intelligence is capable of. So back in the 1990s, they were behind the uh, artificial intelligence, which beat the chess world champion at the time. Uh, More recently, they were behind this AI, which was capable of beating champions at, uh, at, at the game show Jeopardy, which was a very complex task, partly because of the way the clues are structured in Jeopardy, where I think you start with you, you may have to correct me here I've only uh, I've only watched a couple of, of episodes as research for this since I don't think we have it in the UK but I think you, you start with an answer and and then you guess the question or so it, it's a very sort of confusing way of doing the game show format and I think as, for that reason it was a very complex task for an AI to kind of carry out but after this they decided that they wanted to again to to go back to my sort of earlier stated obsession they wanted to to do um, create something that was going to be um, build a machine that was going to do something creative because this is something that a lot of people have ruled out for for artificial intelligence throughout its history and they kind of figured that they could solve so they came up with this idea where you were going to use essentially kind of make uh, chef watson he was going to be able to ha- he was going to have this enormous sort of database of recipes at his at his sort of digital fingertips he was going to be able to kind of drill down on a a, a sort of chemical level and see which ingredients go well together and in fact if people sort of doubt that this is you know, out there, you can actually sort of download a Chef Watson app, which lets you sort of start, you know, start with the type of food that you want. So you can, for example, talk about, you know, I would love to have a a a French quiche with noodles, and you can pick out all of these strange ingredients that have nothing to do with one another. And then it'll essentially work out which ingredients should um, sort of go together and generate a sort of step by step recipe. So In some ways, it's not. Obviously, it's not sort of world changing. But Watson is now being used to help do uh, drug discovery, which I think a lot of people would realize the the application of, you know, there are lots of drugs because of the cost involved with uh, researching them and developing them particularly if they're not going to be drugs that result in a particularly high uh, sort of profit or yield for the drug company, may never be sort of have resources dedicated to them. If you're able to use an artificial intelligence to go out and sort of research those solutions, then that's something which could be a net positive for humanity. So Chef Watson was really in some ways a kind of a stunt, you know, again, like like building an artificial intelligence that can beat someone at a game show. But it had this, you know, it does sort of t- Touch on a lot of things which we don't think are necessarily possible for a machine to do. Again, I suppose depending on where, on, on how much you sort of uh, uh, cook or or, or or not, you know, this is another creative application. If you speak to a great chef, there's no doubt that what they're doing is within their own field the equivalent of you know painting a masterpiece or writing the perfect film script or you know whatever. Else you might think of as creative, so the fact that machines can carry that out, I think is quite an impressive an impressive task.
1: This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Luke Dormel, and we're talking about his book Thinking Machines. And Luke, so we've been talking about artificial intelligence and I guess in a lot of people's minds this is, you know, it's to do with computers and computer programming and more and more complex and complicated computer programming. But there are other other ways in which artificial intelligence works. I want to talk to you about, tell us what uh, neural networking is. Absolutely.
3: Yes. Neural networks. This actually goes back to what I was talking about earlier, right at the or sort of reasonably at the start of our conversation, where I was talking about the changing way that we envision machine intelligence and that that kind of shift away from what's often called good old fashioned AI. This idea of machines where you sort of lay out every single rule um, that a computer needs to follow in order to achieve a particular thing towards this idea of machine learning, where machines can actually absorb data and work things out for themselves. And a neural network is essentially that. It is a a machine, a, a computer science concept, which is based on the way that the human brain works. And what's interesting about this is essentially unlike that good old fashioned AI concept where as the creator, you know exactly how a machine is going to carry out a particular task. With a neural network, what you do is you have your your, your inputs and your outputs and you let the computer figure out that middle bit. So, for example, um, if you were trying to get a, a, a machine to recognize a, a particular person in a picture, you may sort of feed it. 10 images of, um, you, you know, 10, 10 images of your best friend and 10, 10 images of someone who's not your random people. And then at the end, you say, for, for the first few pictures, you start sort of correcting it manually. Um, so you kind of say, you know, this isn't my, my friend, this one is my friend, this isn't. And then after a while, the computer, it works out, I suppose, that kind of complicated sort of middle step. And we ne- don't necessarily know exactly what it's working out along the way in order to be able to sort of uh, um, uh, come to this conclusion which I think is, is quite an interesting concept because again it's this idea of actually sort of learning.
1: You mentioned earlier the the internet the idea of the internet of things and only a few days ago we had this situation where a large part of the internet went down because a uh, a network of you know connected smart things were used to uh, to host a bot. Um, now, obviously, this was you know this was a person doing this somewhere. It wasn't the smart toothbrushes deciding to do it themselves. It's obviously not Skynet, but it's still worrying in that direction, isn't it?
3: Yes, absolutely. I think that. There, there there's a degree to which we invite these sort of smart devices into our homes and we kind of assume maybe in some ways that they do function exactly like the old non-smart dumb sort of analog for them so i do think that there is certainly a concern on the part of a lot of security researchers um about the fact that these are devices which can often be you know they don't always have the necessary security protocols they are things which could potentially be hacked and because they're things which you know, we're, we're potentially wearing or we're inviting into our houses. And they're constantly listening. They're constantly gathering data. There's quite a lot of harm that they could do. Um, if, if you think about, you know, a self-driving car, the idea that someone could maybe hack that is, is certainly a concerning um, uh, sort of idea. So I think that this is something which is certainly going to become more of an issue in the next few years, as we see more and more of these tools actually being deployed into the real world and possibly being used by people who aren't just geeks who like like them for, for the idea of having, you know, a smart gadget. This week, there was a piece of legislature in, I think, uh, um, one part of Texas, which, which talked about the fact that every new build home has to now have a smart thermostat. And increasingly, these these kinds of tools are going to be uh, used. And in, in a lot of cases, they, they're going to be used in a way that's very positive. For example, one of the case studies I talk about in the book involves a project which is designed to help elderly people stay in their homes for longer, sort of living independently rather than going into You know, maybe a nursing home, and the idea is essentially you could have sort of smart sensors which could alert people if they if if they have a fall, or possibly even more sort of complex behaviour than that. If, for example, they show very disorganized thought patterns. If they're in the kitchen, they start sort of pulling out pans, but they're not using them if they take a long time to perform something. We may start to kind of diagnose particular, you know, you you may start to kind of realize uh, behavioral patterns that you may not otherwise realize, which could previously have caused us to just sort of say, well, we'll put them into a home where they're going to be watched the whole time. So I think that there are Applications of this technology. It's not just about smart devices. You know, everyone thinks about. a a, a smart connected toothbrush and, you know, a toothbrush that can talk to your fridge. Why would you ever need that? But one of the things which I found quite interesting about researching this book is the idea that increasingly it's going to be the interactions between these devices which are going to be able to do some quite interesting things. You know, the idea, for example, of, I don't know, a a, a wearable uh, device that if you haven't walked a certain number of steps in the day, it won't uh, turn on your, your television at night or your television having access to a, a wearable that tracks your sleep. And it knows that, for example, if you watch Game of Thrones last thing before you go to sleep, then you won't get to sleep for an extra half an hour or something. So it suggests something else. You know, these are quite interesting interactions, uh, at least from my sort of perspective. And that they, they, they are the ones which, as with the illustration of the, you know, keeping people in their homes, living independently for longer, um, you know, could really have beneficial um, sort of impacts on our lives. So I think that looking at them as net negatives, looking at it as just the idea that we're bringing in, you know, sort of HAL 9000 into our house and inevitably it's going to go wrong and start spying on us and then conspiring to kill us is probably uh, not entirely fair. But I do think that there are certainly concerns in this area. And I think what we are seeing now is that a lot of these tools don't have adequate security. And so this is going to be really something which is going to become a big issue in the next few years
1: and I think certainly there, are, you know, there are obviously security concerns, especially with with things that can have cameras on them or that can record, like the sort of you know the the Google Home and the Amazon the Amazon Echo. But you know, going back to you just described, you know, HAL. And I think obviously culture, popular culture, films and books want to be dramatic, but we have much more popular culture that's about a dystopian vision of the future where AI runs amok and kills us all than there are about. AI taking care of old people and and ordering as a new bottle of milk. Why are those things so popular? Well, I suppose what are we afraid of? Is 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 a better way of looking at that?
3: I suppose you could look at it from a coldly commercial point of view and say which you know which is going to sell better at the cinema, Jurassic Park, or you know elderly people being ordered bottles of milk by their smart refrigerators for two hours and i think that there's you know certainly a degree to which we kind of like we sort of veer towards these um dystopian futures because you know it is dramatic and it's exciting to kind of look at the ways that technology can go wrong rather than sort of telling parables about technology that works well and uh you know, slightly improves our lives by telling us how many steps we've walked in a particular day. But uh, no, I, I think that in the same way that there seems to be something very profoundly human about this idea of building thinking machines, you know, again, this is something that goes back to Greek myth. There have always been these kind of flip side, uh, you know, the Prometheus story. If you look at Frankenstein, um, you know, that, that that's a kind of a proto-typical uh, example of this kind of fear that we have of the, the sort of the artificial being, which kind of goes wrong and tries to kill us all so i'm not entirely sure why it's there but i think it's probably for the best that it is because i do think that these are subjects which particularly as technology becomes more and more invisible even within, you know, I, 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 I'm 31 and within my lifetime, computers have got far, far smaller. You know, they, you, you now have a, a computer in your pocket in the form of your smartphone, which is far smarter than computers which people were using in the 1960s and 70s, which filled entire rooms. So technology is becoming more and more invisible. Just yesterday, I was writing about a smart um, AI robotics project, which had created these tiny little uh, robots which were able to crawl on people's clothes. And the idea was essentially it could hide in your pocket until you needed it and then it could crawl crawl out and sort of, you know, form a little screen on your arm and then sort of scamper back into your pocket when you weren't when you didn't need it. So I think that because these technologies are becoming invisible, we're talking about, you know, uh sensors that could be built into walls or that kind of thing. It is important to have these kind of visible examples of um, yeah, I suppose kind of Chipping away and asking these questions about, you know, how can these things negatively impact on our lives? Because a lot of the time we don't stop and think about how these systems work. And a lot of the time we think that, you know, for example, the uh, the the algorithms that a company like Google uses uh, to, to structure information, we think of these things as objective in some way. And anyone who sort of spends any time with algorithms immediately can say that, you know, these are deeply not necessarily deeply flawed, but these are deeply subjective concepts. So I think that anything which asking questions about how these things actually function is good. and maybe the best way to do that is by by sort of stories that uh, warn us about the perils of, of AI.
2: Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archives at littleadams.com.
1: The other thing that is often a, a subject of those sort of films is the idea that the robots will get to the point where they you know they're so intelligent that they'll just realize that the best way to deal with human beings is to wipe them all out. We've obviously, you know, we don't kill each other, not necessarily because it's wrong, but because we've we've had thousands of years of developing ethics and ways of living together. And Why would, you know, why would the robots give it up? I mean, at the moment, one thing that is
3: quite interesting is that for the first time, companies are actually considering AI ethics in a way that's beyond, you know, previously this was something which was kind of, you know, I don't know, an idea that, you know, two engineers might discuss over a beer on a Friday. And now we're actually starting to see this become a really, really key part of uh, sort of companies thinking about AI. When when Google acquired uh, DeepMind, which is a big AI uh, startup, one of the provisions of it buying it was that it was going to set up an AI ethics board. So I think that we do need to think about the idea of, incorporating ethics into machine intelligence in terms of would machines automatically decide that we needed to be uh you know disposed of or uh you know or, or possibly sort of put in a, a a simulation of of the earth sort of matrix style which a number of people have talked about as well um i'm not entirely sure i tend to often shy away from these questions slightly because i i always fear that this seems to be where people's fear of ai goes whereas as i mentioned earlier with things like employment i think that there are threats which are more imminent i don't see that there would necessarily be a reason why something being smarter than us would automatically mean that it wouldn't uh you know that it would need to destroy us in any way more in the same way that you know we have cats or dogs or a n- number of animals which are far less intelligent than us and we don't feel the need to wipe them out i do think that a lot of these concerns or these predictions when people talk about the fact that this is going to be something which happens in the near future uh, in terms of machines sort of hitting this tipping point where they become as intelligent as humans i'm always very skeptical of that but um yes i i i, I realize this is certainly a concern which has been voiced by you know everyone from Elon Musk to uh, Stephen Hawking so it's certainly an interesting subject
1: I'm Stephen Hawking on the front of this very book indeed indeed yes on on the front of this hopefully entertaining book just to finish off then i wanted to talk about you know some aspects of the future and um particularly let's let's talk about mind clones tell us what mind clones are Well, mind clones, it's one of these ideas that when you
3: first hear it again, you think, oh, my goodness, that's crazy futurism. That's never going to happen. Essentially, the idea of a mind clone is what would you actually what would a computer actually need to be able to do in order to simulate you after you were gone? And there are some I mean. Already, we're seeing an example. You know, I often talk about the fact that essentially Amazon's recommender system—you know, that thing that you go to on on, on Amazon that uh, says, you know, you you bought this, you might also enjoy this based on your past viewing history. You may you may enjoy this if you were to perish the thought pass away tomorrow, and a book was to come out four weeks after that, it's interesting to think that, you know, Amazon's algorithms would be able to recommend books that you may have enjoyed while you're alive that you didn't live to see, which I kind of find fascinating. But essentially, this idea of a mind clone sort of veers from very basic systems which talk about, you know, could you program an interactive version of someone who would be able to kind of live on as a kind of a living diary in some senses so that you know if you uh, if your parents were to pass away you would have a sort of an interactive version of them a little bit like i suppose jorel in in superman and the fortress of solitude where he can go and ask ask him questions and sort of draw on this sort of interactive encyclopedia right through to the idea of you know actual sort of consciousness uploading could we actually at some point figure out how to make computers that act enough like the human brain that we could sort of upload our consciousness into a machine and actually kind of consciously live on through as a sort of an artificial intelligent entity. So it sort of starts as something which is very much rooted in what's actually currently possible and realistically could happen within the next few years to a, a sort of slightly more far-fetched Um, idea but which nonetheless is having and you know a large amount of research done into
1: that's where we're going to have to leave it i've been talking to luke Dormel. we've been talking about thinking machines the inside story of artificial intelligence and our race to build the future which is out now in the uk from wh allen luke thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me thank you very much
0: you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture
1: this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
2: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Adams.
1: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.